0: I joke that a lot of my job is just to catch the scraps of conversation, but that's very true. I spend a lot of my time talking to colleagues all throughout the interagency. Let's make sure we're all being consistent and we're all working towards the same goals and sharing information. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are
1: your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council and I'm joined by the best podcast co-host, think tank guy and thinker ever, Professor Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey Chris.
2: Hey Scotty, thanks uh, thanks for all the puffery. I do appreciate it. <laughs>
1: no no problem. <laughs> well, look, we've we've recorded a number of episodes of Canusa Street over over the last year and it all kind of leads up to our super special guest today. We're going to talk to Jen Savage, who is the Director of Canadian Affairs at the U.S. State Department, also known as the Canada Desk Director uh, in D.C. terms. And what that means is she sits at a very important intersection of public policy and everything that happens in the Canada-U.S. relationship. So it's really terrific uh, that that Jen would join us. And, and We'll talk about everything to do with Canada, U.S. with Jen, because she probably knows everything and writes about it on a regular basis for her various reporting requirements <laughs> up up the food chain, over to the White House and around and around. But before we get to that, Chris, how about if you in- give our guests a sense of her distinguished career and introduce her?
2: Sure, Scotty. This is an exciting meeting. I feel... Like, uh, Jen Savage may be the mayor of Canusa Street or the town. That's right. You know.
1: Let's elect her right now. <laughs> um,
2: you, you ask people about her. They say efficient, effective, affable. She's a career foreign service officer. Jennifer has served in consular political, economic, and management positions in a range of places, and not just in the Western Hemisphere, although port Press Haiti is one of her stops. She also served in uh, Quito, Ecuador, and... Uh, And in Mexico City, which is very good. But then also in Manila, Hanoi, Dublin, Ireland, United Nations in New York. She's been all over the world. She served as DCM, Deputy Deputy Chief of Mission in Harare, Zimbabwe, at a time when Robert Mugabe, who was a really bad character, we would never have him on, uh, well, I guess he's passed, but we still would never invite him to Canusa Street. But he uh, ended historic elections there and the economy started collapsing. She was at the hot seat there. Um, and she was charge d'affaires in Montevideo, Uruguay, during a period of significantly strengthened relations. So she can walk into a mess and leave it better than she found it, which is fantastic. Um, she's also graduate Pretty American. Pretty much University.
1: the opposite of us,
2: Chris. That's <laughs> yes, true. That's true. <laughs> but she is fantastic and a real leader in the foreign service. We're really glad to have you. Welcome, Jennifer Savage.
0: Oh, good. Thank you so much. It's it's really a pleasure to be here on Canusa Street, and with the two of you, who I have great admiration and respect for. So, thank you so much.
1: Oh well, thank you, and we'll see if you're still saying that in, at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, before we get into Canada-U.S. relations, Jen, I, you know, it looks to me that you joined the Foreign Service right out of American University, so um, out of undergrad. So you studied international studies, but did you always think you wanted to be a diplomat? Like, before we get to the to your current uh, job, tell us a little bit about your your journey into diplomacy.
0: Yeah, I am um, one of those few people who knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life from a pretty young age. I. Um, I studied abroad when I was 16 years old. My dad was working for a Japanese company and they offered scholarships um, and came back um, from that summer in Japan um, and said, I want to be an ambassador. I had no idea at that point what an ambassador was or did or how they spent their time, but I just knew I wanted to stay in international affairs and representing my country overseas. I went from there at 16 years old, Started researching universities and found American University, and was thrilled to go to school in Washington, DC, with really fabulous and impressive professors um, <laughs> and um, really um, just amazing experiences and internships all along the way. Um, and then all of my colleagues at the School of International Studies were taking the foreign service exam. I had no idea, again, what that was, but okay, sign me up. What is this exam we're all taking? Great. Um, And then after I signed up, I learned that oh, the Foreign Service, State Department, diplomats, <laughs> this is exactly what I said I wanted to do. So um, my past just really led me um, from a really young age, and I have never once looked back. I have loved my career. I honestly say that I can count on one hand the number of days I didn't wake up in the morning looking forward to go to work. It is just, just a thrilling career and really a great opportunity to give back to my country, to, to feel good about what I'm doing every day.
1: I, I love hearing that, and uh, I feel lucky too. I mean, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person I know. So it's it's fun to, it's fun to meet another another person who feels that way about about her life choices. But I would say you also doubled down because your your husband JP is also in the United States Foreign Service. Is that right? Yes. He, um, he
0: I found him. I had already been in the Foreign Service uh, about ten years when he and I met. Um, and we were having that conversation knowing that we were planning on, on blending our lives together and our families. And, um, you know, who's, go, who's gonna give? Who's, whose career is gonna, is gonna take precedence? Um, and I met just a gem of a man who said, yeah, my salary may be three times yours, but your is, yours is a career of public service, of dedication and, and of passion. You're, you're passionate about what you do so let's do it. Um, and he was excited about the opportunity to live and work overseas and, and off we went. Um, and then about a year and a half after he followed me as a spouse, he decided that the life of what we call a trailing spouse, um, right, right. Uh, ended up. he ended up joining the Foreign Service himself and decided that he also wanted to join public service.
1: So that's, that's cool. And now do you, um, as pe- if people don't know the foreign service, I happened to be in it for a few years, a million years ago, um, you bid on jobs. And so you, you serve in your posting, um, for three years, roughly, and then you, and then you start to look around and see what's out there in the world. Where are there vacancies? Where will there be vacancies when you're available? And if, if both of you are now looking or do you bid to, you know, how does that work? Does does the State Department care that you're married to somebody in the Foreign Service and say, "Well, we've got a job for you as an econ officer and him as a you know uh, admin"? I don't know. How does give us a little vision into that?
0: Um, it was easier at um, more junior levels of our careers. Um, and my husband um, is also just a, g- a great champion of my career. And again, I have to say, I, I-, I found a real gem out there. Um, but um Uh, For the most part, he's in IT, and I've been, um, as Chris mentioned, I've been sort of in all of of what we call our generalist fields. I've been in in economics, politics, consular, administration, management, everything we do. Um, And um, uh, that pairing has been able to work out really well because we weren't in each other's supervisory chain. Um, The State Department is very supportive, and they try um, they try. Well, that's but good. Yeah. Um, as I yeah. got into more senior levels, when I'm working in the front office um, as deputy chief of mission, everyone in the embassy reports to me. And as a result of that, we have a, a six-year-old now. And for the first five years of his life, he didn't live in the same house with both his mom and his dad. We had to be wow. separated tours. when I was in Zimbabwe and when I was in Uruguay, um, his dad was, was elsewhere. When I was in Zimbabwe, his dad was uh, reopening our embassy in Mogadishu, Somalia, and wow. when I was in uh, in Uruguay, uh, his dad was across the river in Argentina. So again, State Department's done great at getting us close, <laughs> closest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we we weren't able to be together when when I was in the the front office, the executive office of, of an embassy.
1: Well, thank thanks. We didn't give you a heads up that we wanted to ask your life story, but I love it. Let's, so so let's. Since you're the mayor of Canusa Street, we just elected you. Let's let's talk about Canada for a minute. Um, you've served around the world, uh, and you're now uh, running Canadian affairs for the State Department here in Washington uh, as director of uh, of the kid of Canadian affairs. So. Uh, I tend to think that Canada is a plum posting. Is this something that you've been working your way towards or or did it just kind of open up and you thought, okay, well, that's interesting. I haven't done that before. What uh, Tell us about the, the Canada desk job.
0: It definitely is a, a plum posting. Um, it is a unique opportunity to work in... Um, at, such an important partnership for the United States, um, the, the the priority and the emphasis that we place on our relationship with Canada just makes it uh, a critical posting. It's also um, a real privilege to serve in a job just sort of inside baseball um, in the State Department in a job where I get so much exposure to our leadership. Um, it is, um, you, you, you mentioned that I'm running Canadian Affairs. I am not running Canadian Affairs. The, the calls that happen on a daily basis are at much higher levels um, than mine. I am simply trying to catch the scraps of conversations that are happening above my head Seeing what I can pull from the scraps of conversations that I hear about and seeing what I can glean about what our leadership is doing and and where they're taking um, um, our relationship with Canada. Um, But it is that kind of a relationship where I am on a daily basis basis trying to hear what the Assistant Secretary, our Undersecretary for Political Affairs, our Deputy Secretary, our Secretary, what all of these folks who have daily contact with their Canadian counterparts, what all of them are talking about. that, we try to shape direct, um, make sure that we're putting emphasis on the right priorities, the the important initiatives that we're trying to push forward. Um, So it truly is a privilege to be here on the desk.
2: I want to ask you a little bit of a follow-up on that. And um, uh, Jennifer, uh, just to get a sense of how the State Department, which in a place like Zimbabwe, other than maybe Department uh, of Defense, you're really the lead and you really are the lead on the ground. With a country like Canada, there's just so much interagency because so many of the domestic policy agencies are are, are having conversations with Canadian counterparts that may be federal or provincial. How do you navigate in that world where um, it's so, you, you talk about what's outside your reach within the building and within the State Department, but it even goes further than that because there are a lot of people having conversations and you know you're not going to know about all of them, but how, how do you manage? Do you see that as you're, you're the coach? Do you try to get control of it? Um, how do How do you add value in that kind of crazy environment, which must be very tough?
0: Um, yeah, we absolutely don't try to take control of it. <laughs> you're very, very right. Um, the Canadian Embassy here has just vast contacts all throughout Washington. Within the Embassy, there are entire sections dedicated to following what's happening on Congress, what's happening elsewhere in the interagency. Um, when you're a desk officer for, for example, my last post is Uruguay, almost all contact um, from the Uruguayan embassy goes through the desk officer. Hey, I'd like to meet with somebody at Treasury. Hey, I'd like to meet with somebody at Commerce. All of that, the desk officer in the State Department would be making contacts and introductions and setting up those meetings. With Canada, again, the the relationship is so sophisticated and our Canadian embassy counterparts have their own vast network of contacts. So for us on the desk, we've made a very conscious effort. We are not gonna try to wrangle all of these contacts and relationships. We're not gonna try to manage all of this. Um, It is just far too extensive. But what we try to do is build really strong relationships with our counterparts so that they feel very comfortable um, chatting with us and telling us about a conversation that they. Just had, um, and then we also try to make sure that we've got great re- re- relationships with our interagency partners here um, in the State Department. And it's it's frequent. I, I I joke that a lot of my job is just to catch the scraps of of conversation, but that's very true. I am I am I spend a lot of my time talking to colleagues all throughout the interagency at Treasury, at DHS, at Department of Defense. All throughout the interagency, trying to know who had the last chat, who's got the latest information, who's trying what. Let's make sure we're all being consistent and 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 we're all sort of working towards the same goals and 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 that we're sharing information with each other. So it, it really is uh, sometimes a bit like herding cats, um, but often um, the the fact of the matter is, you know, when you're herding cats, they're all heading off in different directions. The fact of the matter is, um, it's far easier with Canada because. We are all heading in the same direction, even even in the interagency, and when we talk together uh, with our Canadian counterparts, we're all trying to accomplish the same things. We share the same values and the same goals, um, so so it, it's it's far easier than herding cats.
2: Absolutely, I, and and you were just um, at the North American Leaders Summit. We um, we talked a little bit with Brian Nichols when and he gave us kind of a summit preview. I wonder how that was because those are moments where you're really it is Canada U.S. But you're adding a third factor, which in this case was Mexico. Um, often Canada seems to be in all the the clubs, <laughs> so they they they're kind of on the summit tour. You'll see them well, at not NATO. All,
1: not all the clubs. All right, not they, all. They want to be. They want to be in all the clubs, yeah. but they're in a lot of them. They are in a lot of this. them. Well, I can't resist.
2: <laughs> True, they're joiners, and they would like to join more. But I guess what I was kind of getting at, there's a level of this relationship where the leaders are running into each other, you know, at this meeting, at that meeting, and they're having contact maybe more regularly than you will with, say, the U.S. ambassador even, just on a face-to-face basis. How how do you support that kind of conversation and, and kind of keep the continuity of the threads? And when you talk about hearing little things like... There's a little moment where the two leaders are talking, hey, we should do this together. And then, of course, that has, somebody has to actually do it or prep it for the next summit. How do you manage in that? Is it, is it just a, a stream or do you feel that you're pulled and pushed in different directions as you go from one summit to the next?
0: Um, well, it's even more difficult than that in that I was not in Mexico City. I did not. Oh, it.
2: you had to do the backfield. You were, you were here on ground control.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, We try to keep our our teams on the ground um, fairly lean and limited um, and um, really focused. Um, And I could do more uh, to be of assistance, frankly, here from Washington, making sure that everybody had what they need needed. Um, I could do more from here. But again, as you know, that that just ups the level of difficulty a little bit more. I have to rely a lot. Um, Each of our what we call principals, each of our, our major travelers gets a control officer who manages their schedule and helps ensure that they get to all the right events, have all the right materials. And so I am in touch with the control officers constantly. How's it going? What do they need? What are they being asked about? Do they have the right information uh, to be able to answer the questions they're being asked, um, and and making sure that that again we're all still singing off the same page, marching marching in the right direction, all of those all of those things, um, making sure that, that we're all coordinated and working together towards the same goals.
2: Now, is it going to be the same for the upcoming meeting of uh, of President Biden visiting Canada, uh, or do you become? more the the central node for a meeting like that? Or will you be much more involved because it is bilateral and because it is in Canada proper?
0: You know, it's it will be very, very similar, um, and this is sort of the nature of these highest level visits when the president of the United States travels. Um, uh, the the White House uh, runs his travel, and the White House um, runs the agenda, plans the agenda together with our Canadian counterparts, um, and um, and that is something where I am just sitting here in Washington firing off information to whoever needs it, making sure that everyone, again, air traffic control from here. Um, It's different when, for example, the secretary travels um, to Canada, as he did last October. I I, um, did not travel on on that occasion in October, but we do um, work very closely with our embassy, and it's a state department visit. Um, The secretary of state travels. The state is far more involved in planning um, the agenda, the activities, et cetera. So um, again, when it's whether it's trilateral or bilateral, when it is a White House level visit, um, we are just scrambling to support and make sure that the president has what he needs to be successful together with the Prime Minister.
2: That's amazing, and so, you do someday, great work. Chris, yes. What? Yeah. What are you some,
1: someday we'll have to we'll have to do some war stories on presidential and secretary visits. I've been been involved in a bunch of them, and there are always fun stories to tell. But, um, but, 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 but while we have Jen here, I want to ask a little bit about the policy agenda for the upcoming uh, coming out of the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City, and then in anticipation of the bilat and going forward. So let me start with this jen how much of the canada u.s work uh that you undertake is truly bilateral canada u.s issues um whether they're trade or border or whatever and how much of it is more multilateral, um, how Canada and U.S. collaborate together on global challenges? And an example of that would be um, the U.S. would really love for Canada to take a massive leadership role in Haiti. I know you served in Haiti. It's top of mind for many, many of us now. So so how much of it is Canada-U.S. versus uh, multilateral in the world, would you say, on a just generally
0: I think there's a really good balance um, between the two. Um, Canada is our global partner. I mean, I think Canada, I, I remember actually, sorry, a little bit more um, inside the State Department, um, but I remember when I interviewed for the job, I had prepared and studied a lot about um, domestic politics and the structure of government in Canada and, and um, was prepared for any question on Canada. And the first quest- the first thing they said to me was, we're not going to ask you about Canada at all. We're going to ask you about everywhere else in the world because our first quest, first call, anytime there's a crisis or, or a new development in the world, our first call is to Canada. So if you're going to work the Canada desk, yeah. you've got to have a good sense of the rest of the world. Um, so that, that really sort of is, is representative of our, our partnership with Canada on all global issues. And that is absolutely a priority. At the same time, we have a close partnership with our neighbor, Canada. And that is where the bilateral, whether it's um, border travel, whether it's economics and commerce and trade passing across the border, whether it's working together on on diversity issues or healthcare challenges, um, all of these issues um, and security challenges, these are bilateral issues that we can tackle together uh, with Canada. Um, and so the, it's a really sort of balanced agenda in terms of our workload
1: that that's really helpful. Now we're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'd like to ask Jen about something that I know she thinks a lot about, which is the future of the foreign service. And maybe we'll add to that the future of the Canada us relationship. So let's take a break and we'll come right back.
2: The Wilson Center's Canada Institute is a proud co-producer of the Canusa Street Podcast. For more insights and analysis from the world's leading think tank on Canada-U.S. relations, please visit us on the web at www.wilsoncenter.org. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Sands. I'm here with Scotty Greenwood, my fabulous co-host. And we're talking to Jennifer Savage, who is the Director of Canadian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. And when we were last chatting, um, right before the break, Scotty, you were about to introduce another line of questioning. So over to you.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about the future. Jen, Before we'll, we'll set Canada U.S. aside for just a moment. Um, future of the Foreign Service, it's something you think about, Um Tell us, tell us what it is. What what are the, what are the challenges and opportunities? How do you think about the future? What should, what should uh, the greater world be thinking about when we think about United States foreign service?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's not just me thinking about um, about uh, modernization of diplomacy and the future of the Foreign Service. Um, this is something um, that Secretary Blinken has a strong agenda for modernization of diplomacy. I would also note um, that Canada and the Canadian Foreign Service is also uh, looking heavily into it, and we just had a delegation of parliamentarians uh, come visit the State Department to have a conversation about um, what uh, the st- the secretary's modernization efforts look like? Um, it's an important conversation. We have to acknowledge that the way de- diplomacy has uh, been conducted for decades and generations um, is is going to have to shift and change um, to deal with modern realities and modern challenges. Um, there has to be a shift in the use of technology. Um, there has to be a lot more um, sort of mobility in our in our technology and the ability to get out from behind the walls of embassies um, and to get out from the the community of of political leadership in the countries where we serve and really speak to um, our host country nationals and in my case speak to canadians at every level far from ottawa um, far from political leadership jobs i want to talk to canadians in small towns um, far from Ottawa um, and, and understand what's what are their concerns and what are their thoughts about the United States and our relationship and what should be my priorities from their opinion. Um, I think, uh, again, I, I mentioned that technology needs to change. In terms of our staffing, I think um, I've been really proud and pleased. Um, Secretary Blinken has put a a real emphasis on making sure that our hiring um, is effective and and that we're hiring a State Department, a Foreign Service um, Corps, that represents the United States truly and looks like the United States and has the best interests of the United States at heart. Um, And so that we are are, um, truly a diverse organization um, with diverse inputs and opinions. Um, Those are uh, two major issues. Um, When we think about different things such as career mobility, which is so common, it is very unusual. For um, folks like me who uh, started my career in 1996, and here I am in the same with the same employer, uh, right. still a foreign yeah. service officer yeah. Yeah. In, in 2023. Uh, that's unusual. And and when you look at career mobility, how can um, a modern uh, diplomatic corps and foreign service res- uh, function with employees who are coming in and out um, and moving on uh, more quickly, turning over in different ways, looking to achieve? and contribute and share what they have to offer, um, but not through a, a lifetime career of service, but um, on, a, on a shorter-term basis, building on a career that, that of achievements elsewhere.
1: Yeah, you you raise an interesting point, because cor- correct me on this, okay? My, I was a political appointee a million years ago in the Foreign Service, so that's a completely different path. Um, but if you're joining you know, through the front door, (laughs) joining the Foreign Service, you've got to take the Foreign Service exam, which is written, um, or online, actually, if you make it through that hurdle, um, you then have a process, an interview process. And there are several steps along the way. And I think it can take like a couple of years, can't it, Jen, from the time you uh, sign up to take the exam, assume you do well and get through, like, isn't it literally a couple of years before you would get your first offer?
0: Yes, um, it can be, um, in my own case, um, I, uh, took nearly two years, um, from when I first took the foreign service exam until when when I entered, um, and that was a common experience in, um, in the late 90s when I joined. Um, it still can be a common experience today. Um, It also can be much faster. Um, uh, There is still a a requirement for a written exam. Um, There is much more emphasis now on looking at um, your resume, your background, what you bring to the job. um, And that is a new feature of, of modernization. Um, where we're we're looking to pull in candidates um, with with, uh, different sorts of backgrounds. Um, You have to pass oral examinations. You have to get security clearances and medical clearances. All of these things take a great amount of time. Um, But they're looking to speed it all up um, because there's no way we're going to with the private sector or with other elements of the of the public sector, if if we're still taking this amount of time to bring people on, by the time they're actually coming on board, uh, they've moved on with their lives and may well, no and, longer be. It.
1: Yeah, and and it strikes me, Chris, I'll ask one more, then back to you. But it strikes me, uh, it's interesting to hear you say this, Jen, because another sort of feature I think of the foreign of the U.S. foreign service is there's there's one one basic path you join and then you do your, you know, your junior posting abroad stamping visas. And so to try to recruit people that are diverse, perhaps mid-career, but send them back to the most junior job there is um, no matter what their life experience or their professional experience, it strikes me, there's a bit of a mismatch there. So if, 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 if y'all are taking that on, you know, bravo, because that's um, that's going to be a cultural change, uh, from from the people that have been doing it the same way for a bazillion years.
0: Yeah, um, it, it is. Um, it's something that that I wouldn't say we're we're looking at a total sea change there, but we definitely are looking at, at ways to to hire more mid career. Um, but it still is true that if you come in through that exam process, you have to start entry-level uh, consular career and I wouldn't write that off as um, as um, you know just sort of a rote stamping visa sort of process you learn critical skills um, of diplomacy in those positions it's um, very quick analytics where you're you're analyzing the the visa case in front of you it's quick decision-making it's good communications um, it's cultural understanding of the country in which you're working on. It's all the basic skills of diplomacy. So it is still an important start um, and an important formative uh, process of the career. But I do know that it is very, very hard for people who have um, a career full of accomplishments. Again, my husband um, joined with a full career behind him, and he came in as an entry-level IT specialist and had to come in. And know he'd gone from being you know, a senior executive and then was, you know, reporting to buried, you know, with six bosses above him between him and the executive <laughs> office. Right, so, right. you know, um, it, it's something that a lot of people choose to do to to join the Foreign Service, but it's something I think that we need to look at in the Foreign Service, whether that's necessary. Um,
2: I, I want to take you back to something we talked about earlier on, which is how you got started with this. And, and it was, a study abroad experience. And at the NALS, uh, one of the announcements or the deliverables that impressed me the most was this idea of looking at North American student mobility and giving young people a chance to study abroad. Places like Canada, often, uh, if you speak only English, you can do okay at, at many of the great universities there, or studying in Mexico, which I think, particularly for Canadians who don't always have that experience with Latin America, could be very good. Um, I I'm also conscious that we've just come through COVID, and there are a number of young people who you know, started international studies and had to do it uh, through Zoom. They didn't get to visit that country. They didn't have that experience because we were all locked down and travel was essential only. C- can you talk a little bit about the role that that had, not only for you, but the, the priority of getting people to see each other face-to-face, despite the fact that even now we're on a Zoom call and doing a podcast, but the value of that face-to-face contact, because it was so important to you and... Uh, I hope it becomes part of what we're encouraging in the next generation.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is critical. And I think um, this is why there was such an emphasis on student mobility um, at NALS. Um, and there has been for, for many years. Um, uh, we have been looking at, at enhancing those student relationships, particularly relationships um, that are, are longer. My my own was a summer study abroad program during high school. But if you're spending a semester abroad, if you're spending um, even more than a full year abroad or or studying abroad for, uh, you know, choosing to do a master's program overseas. um, You have an experience of immersing yourself in another culture um, and truly understanding sort of and building affinities for the culture in which uh, you're living. And those are affinities that carry you forward. So I think um, the the efforts to expand student mobility are critically important. Um, it also expands beyond just what you think of as the traditional student. There certainly is postgraduate study uh, student mobility looking at um, uh, master's and PhD students. But I think there also is, is an effort um, um to ensure that in the private sector, we're ensuring um, exchange programs. And there are a lot of multinational corporations that are welcoming interns and students from overseas come learn about some element of our our company, of our workforce, um, and all of those increase that mutual understanding piece of it that's so important. So yeah, I think it's it's very difficult right now coming out of the pandemic where sort of a group of a class of students have missed those opportunities for for study abroad, but I'm still hopeful that all of those with any interest, and even those who who don't even realize they have an interest in international studies, uh, but I hope that a lot of folks will be able to get some international experience um, either at the postgraduate level or uh, through their work. Um, I mean, everyone has to travel for work. This is a global world right
2: now. Um, so. I know a lot of people on the European side who find the Erasmus program being able to study in each other's countries is a real boost. So we need to think about how we can raise a generation to take over this North America of ours, uh, and the, the Canada-US relationship in particular. So anyway, I'm pontificating. This is because I sell degrees. And I'm all about travel. So we, do we gotta, we gotta. Got to get Scotty we back in it. here. We're we're, all,
1: we're always recruiting and always giving pro tips uh, to Chris's <laughs> students and and large network of fans and admirers. I just um, want to ask one more question, Jen, if I could, um, which is. As you were preparing uh, for your interview and learn everything about Canada, which you were not asked about, (laughs) and now that you deal with, you wake up every day thinking about Canada-US relations just as Chris and I do. There aren't that many of us in the world, Uh, you know, the people in the embassies and uh, the folks in the State Department, but but there aren't that many of us. So as you consider the Canada-US relationship, what do you think is the most vexing issue that our two countries face.
0: Gosh, we have we have a number of challenges. I think um, a lot of them we have plans to tackle, um, but um, some things that occur to me are things um, like supply chain integration, making sure that we are not. Offshoring production of semiconductors, but nearshoring or fringe shoring are all these uh, common buzzwords now, but making sure that we're working together and, and bringing production of semiconductors home. Um, but a lot of that also touches not on just economic competitive and making sure that North America as a region and the U.S. and Canada together bilaterally make sure that we're not just focused on our own economic competitiveness and success, but um, we have to look at, at sort of our position in the world and our, our values and the way that Canada and the U.S. can promote our appreciation for human rights, for rule of law, um, and, and that we're tackling um, real global challenges such as uh, arbitrary detention um, and, yeah. um, and and the challenges that we face in the global world. We were really really pleased, and I'm thinking right now of um, Canada's recently released Indo-Pacific strategy, which takes on uh, several of those issues that I just man- met, that I just mentioned. Um, so. Um, that's a strategy that aligns very, very closely with the United States strategy towards the region as well. Um, It's an area um, uh, with um, the People's Republic of China, we are um, having you know, thriving trade re- relationships, and yet we're having to be cautious and and watch for rule of law um, to still guide our relationship. Um, watch for uh, disinformation campaigns. Watch for human rights violations. Um, it's a cautious relationship, um, even though it is a, a thriving trade relationship, um, interesting cultural relationships, and the United States and Canada are in in lockstep um, um, now navigating these really tricky waters together.
2: Well, you mentioned supply chains, and I I think one of the first steps with supply chains is understanding what that metaphor means, because it's not obvious to people how all the companies that are involved that we never know about, we're just, we just know the label on the box, but we don't know all the people who contributed. Um, There are a lot of issues like that, where you just, you don't see how it's all made, and you have to kind of convey a concept. And I, I wanted to ask you about one in particular that also has been part of really the last several Canada-U.S. high-level meetings, and that's a discussion of diversity, equity, inclusion, and the promotion of those things in the relationship. When you talk about our Canada-U.S. common values, those are are things we share. But where uh, I'd like to maybe see if you could shed some light is, how does that translate from I don't want to dismiss it as virtue signaling, just saying nice things because nice things are nice to action that can actually make a difference in people's lives. I mean, how does that translate in your mind and, and where can the countries make a contribution that's positive on, on the DEI, the diversity equity and inclusion agenda?
0: Absolutely. Um, you've just um, sort of uh, pitched a question that is just um, one that's, that goes um, straight to my interests. Um, and it, it is just, the, the easiest answer I can give is um, when you embrace democracy as strongly as the United States and Canada do, when you are passionate about promoting democracy and rule of law, how can you do that if you're working in a democracy where not everyone has a voice? Everyone needs to have a voice in democracy, and that is why it is so important not just to talk pretty talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, but to work towards true democracy, equity and inclusion at home and Mm -hmm. abroad in the countries where we serve to make sure that um, every voice in the countries where we are have uh, has an opportunity to shape the policy of the country of their own country. Um, You cannot be promoting democracy as as sort of the best model forsaking all others um, unless you really are actively working in a democracy where it is a representative democracy representing all voices. Um, So that leads to important work in in justice and justice reform and making sure that the judicial systems are, are representative of, of everyone and fairly treating everyone making sure that business practices are inclusive making sure that educational opportunities are available to everyone making sure even that um, elected representatives have open doors and are hearing from all communities Advantaged and disadvantaged, um, and hearing from from all voices, whether they are um, speaking to um, leadership and and like opinions uh, similar to their own opinions, or whether they're dissenting opinions, um, our elected leadership worldwide all needs to be open to all voices within their communities, and that is where. Um, work on diversity goes from just being theoretical and nice, pleasant talk to no, 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 we have to actually get this organization to have a voice. This individual
1: has to have access to speak truth to power. Fantastic. Jen, I, I love that I love that answer, and you can feel your passion. Well, li- listen, what a what a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you for thank you for spending time with us. You, you're um, busy every day, but busy particularly now in between a trilateral and in the run up to a bilateral meeting that involves Canada and the United States. So, um, I want to say thank you, and and look, we we're here for you, and look forward to um, celebrating on the other end of the bilateral visit, all the great things that Canada and the U.S. are doing together. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, I don't know that we've really
0: talked too much about the bilateral opportunity, but um, yeah, uh, President Biden announced his visit to Canada in March. Um, we don't have specific dates yet, um, our events or destinations ready to announce, um, but it is an exciting opportunity. And it's true, um, it's it's just clear the commitment to the relationship that we have with Canada. Um, and and we're really, really excited to, to, um, to use this visit to sort of advance even further um our shared goals so really light, light.
2: you've traveled around the world you've served in a lot of places but now y- y- you've really got a career highlight you're working in a country that has the best podcast ever
0: <laughs> <laughs> no it's a pleasure to be with both of you thank you so much
1: Chris, I'm biased, but I love talking to people in the State Department. I used to work in the State Department a million years ago. Actually, when Jen was graduating from college, I was getting appointed by President Clinton to go to Ottawa, and you were well into (laughs) probably... I don't know if you were tenured by then, but you were well <laughs> on your way. <laughs> so
2: I know uh, feel a little old. It does make you feel old. But, but really, I mean, I, I think sometimes we underestimate how the kind of steady as, as you go. We value the relationship, et cetera. It seems after you've done Canada for a while, you think, oh, it's kind of a platitude. But it's actually really important, I think.
1: I Yeah, and I like the fact that in our system, people cycle in and out. Because if you get somebody who's jaded on an issue... Just wait three years because there's going to be somebody else in the chair, and they can they can take a fresh look at it. I was just going to share one little quick story though, sure. talking about a presidential visit. Um, when President Obama actually was visiting Canada for the first time, um, I was talking to folks at the at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, and and um, they were thinking about what to do with the president, and. Um, th- they were talking about what would a good OTR be? OTR is an off the record. So it's a well orchestrated and well planned movement that feels spontaneous <laughs> <laughs> to the outside world. And I am pretty sure I don't know if other people think that they thought of this, but um maybe they did and we all did. But I recommended um The Beaver a bakery Tails yeah. in the in the Bywood market. And the president went into a bakery he bought cookies. There's a picture of him in that bakery, um, and he brought them home to the girls. And so, and the reason for that suggested OTR having done a whole bunch of presidential visits for various presidents um, is it was really close to the U.S. Embassy. Um, you could get in and out. The pictures would look good. You know all of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. You know they they are the the embassy and the White House and all the various folks and the Canadians are in full force right now planning President Biden's trip to Canada. And every minute of the schedule will have meaning. And, you know, our listeners can count on us to unpack it, describe it, analyze it <laughs> with the various people that participate uh, before, during and after. So it'll it'll be fun to have a... This will be our first presidential visit
2: on Canusa Street. It is, and it will be. And, you know, it's funny, when you said President Obama's visit, I immediately knew what you were going to talk about uh, i know yeah. about that moment because it was what people remember even now canadians will re- will remember obama he bought a cookie it's great you know like how you can kind of capture friendship and and, and reveal the humanity of a leader uh you know th- that they're people too and that they're likable and they're approachable just has this positive effect signaling in a way to the rest of the country to you know we get along despite all the ups and downs and you were brilliant at that. That was I, I knew that would have been you, so you're very good
1: <laughs> well, I, I, there might have been others that thought of it too, but I definitely pitched the idea and and they did it. You know, the other thing that that people like us see is these two leaders, meaning Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden, have a comfort level and a friendship with each other uh, that is palpable. And if when you talk to the people that were in the room with them a few weeks ago in Mexico City, You know, they said you could see the visible relaxation when the two came in to talk to each other, Um, that it's like, okay, this, you know, it's different when you're gearing up to do battle, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with with a leader for whom you need to press them on a certain issue or we don't share their values, as Jen, Jen says. But in the case of Canada and the United States, not always, but right now in this moment in history, our two leaders, be they different generations, be they have they have different life experiences but uh they seem to be fond of each other and i I think that matters
2: i think it matters too and i i think it matters more now than ever because our our corner of the world is is doing all right but it's a very perilous world outside of the canada u.s space and what's great about the canadians is they're there with us um as many places as they can they step up and um there's more work than any of us can do on our own, but it's great to know that we have a partner that is globally minded, uh, like Canada, to work with on these things, so.
1: Yeah, and you know, actually, just as, as we wrap, one shameless plug here, as we're talking about presidential visits, uh, if our listeners want to go back and listen to the podcast episodes we did on the book with faith and goodwill, All right. that's a book that's a book we public, Canadian American Business Council published on presidents and prime ministers through the years together, including to the present day. Um, so go back and listen to that and listen to that podcast if you want to start getting smart on the history of presidents and prime ministers together.
2: That's why people come to Canusa Street, Scotty, to get smart, smart, smart.
1: The, and they get all the smarts is from you, Chris. No.
2: All the <laughs> Well all from the, the guests from and you
1: are from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. it's always
2: Great a to pleasure. See you, as always Thank you. You
0: too. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.